We come now in our time of worship to the time where we come together before God's Word. This is the passage. Actually, there's a change in your bulletin. We're going to be reading John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. So if you turn to your Bibles to John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and if you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 895. Um, and this is a time for us to be silent and to listen to God speak. And this is the passage that later on the sermon will be based upon. So John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Let's give our attention to God's holy and inerrant word. As he passed by, he saw a blind man, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work, work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. How we doing? Fantastic. All right. (laughs) I consider it a real privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, As Nathan said, I've served over at Independent now for going on three years. uh, And... um, Again, my wife's Meredith. She's there, and we're really uh, excited to be here with you. Uh, if you, I am responsible for the reason why uh, it says Exodus uh, two or so here, and we read John nine. And so, I also appreciate your uh, willingness to let me pivot this morning and, and do a little bit of a different sermon. Never done this before uh, to to uh, pull an audible, uh, and yet here we are. So, but before I do that, let me pray for us, uh, and then we'll dive into God's word. Father, as we, as we look at your word, we ask, Father, that you would take it and you would apply it to the souls in this room, um, mine being first and foremost, uh, souls that are in need of clarity, souls in need of encouragement, in need of conviction, in need of strength, Father, souls that are in need of your grace. And so, Father, if any of that happens, we will, will know that you are the one who, who accomplished that. And so would you give us now eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us minds to perceive and hearts inclined towards you? For our good and, Father, for your glory. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Uh, There's an old expression. uh, You may have heard it. uh, If it were a snake... It would have bit you. Um, say you're, you're searching for something, you're high and low, you can't find it anywhere. And as it turns out, that something that, that, you're, that you're searching for is actually right in front of your face. Uh, I suspect that most of us have had this experience before. For me, it happens far too often with my keys. Uh, in fact, a, a couple of months ago at IPC, IPC is a pretty large facility. Um, I lost my keys for an extended period of time. Um, and after exploring every square inch of that facility, places I'd never even been before, maybe my keys had found their way there. Um, sending out mass emails to the entire staff, 
uh, our custodian, an, an angel sent down from heaven, uh, came to my office, and within around a minute of his time there, just handed them to me, and um, I first felt shame and gratitude and some mixture uh, of that, um, but, but that's my experience. So whether we're talking about our keys or our phones or our purses or our wallets, it is fascinating that, that something can literally be right in front of our face, and for whatever reason, we, we just can't see it. The passage that we read earlier, um, John chapter 9, is all about the subject of vision and blindness, uh, of seeing and not seeing. Uh, John 9, we, what we read before, we, we see Jesus healing this man who is born blind. And it's significant that he was born blind. This man is seeing for the first time in his life. And Jesus is doing this not as a, as a magician attempting to entertain. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus' supernatural miracles are referred to as signs. Signs which, which point beyond themselves to communicate some type of greater message. And with Jesus healing a man born blind, Jesus is illustrating a point. The point being that human beings universally have a vision problem. That though we may be able to see physically, spiritually speaking, all of us are blind from the get-go. And what we need is for someone to come to us and to take away that darkness, which is exactly what Jesus, as the light of the world, what he refers to himself as, the light of the world has come to do, to heal our blindness and to give us sight. What we're going to do today, there are 41 verses in John chapter 9. We've read the first seven. We're not going to read all 41. But as you read the rest of John 9, what's fascinating is that right beside this man who couldn't see physically but now can, you see juxtaposed next to him a number of people who, as they interact both with Jesus and the man who's been healed, they lack sight. They lack clarity. And with there being such a lack of vision among the people who can see, as the chapter wraps up, it begs the reader to ask the question, what about about us? What about me? What about our eyes? Now, for those of us who profess faith in Jesus, when we hear the question, what about our eyes? We can say, With the man born blind, verse 25, I was blind, and now I see. And that would be just as true for us as it was for him. But as true as that is, when presented with that question, what about our eyes? There also could be a temptation to think that this question no longer has really anything to do with us. We've moved past that now. Our eyes are are, are good. The problem, however, with this mindset is that in the verses that we just read, we find this lack of vision even from the disciples, from the ones who are, are following Jesus. And the reason I want to point this out is because it's possible for us as believers to, to sort of subtly think that, that we have, have arrived at some type of insight or, or, or clarity, or, or awareness that would lead us to believe, or, or, or rather to forget, 
what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that, that, that we all see through a glass dimly. That, that even for us as believers, though Christ has given us the light of life, that does not mean that there are not areas in our life where we are still blind. In the realm of automobiles, we refer to these as blind spots. Okay, we're, we're driving along and, and we got our mirrors and we can see a good bit of what's going on around us. Uh, but, but then one of those little smart cars, you know, they're about that long. Then they, they kind of come alongside and they just kind of hang out there for, for a little bit right between there in the area where you can't see them. And what I want us to do today is to realize that all of us have these in our lives. We all have areas where where there's something present that we just can't see. Areas like my keys, for instance, where they're right in front of our face, and yet we are oblivious to them. Areas where we lack self-awareness. Areas where we, as Christians, are still walking in darkness. So the title of today's message is not Identity Crisis. The title of today's message is Finding Jesus in Our Blind Spots. It's been said that what prevents us from seeing Jesus is a greater commitment to seeing something else. Let me repeat that. What prevents us from seeing Jesus is a greater commitment to seeing something else. And so as we work through this chapter on vision and blindness, we find at least three different commitments that are keeping people from truly recognizing Jesus and his work and what he came to accomplish. Which, again, applies just as much to believers as people who have not come to faith as of yet. And these commitments are going to serve as our three points for today. So the first of these commitments I want us to look at is a commitment to merit. M-E-R-I-T. A commitment to merit. Or in other words, a commitment to, to us getting what we deserve. Take a look at verses 1 and 2, if you would. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And there's a certain logic that onlookers often appeal to when a person or a group of people experience tragedy or misfortune or or, or hardship of some sort. We we heard it at 9-11. We heard it with Hurricane Katrina. We heard it with the earthquake in Haiti. And we hear it here. And the thought is this. Well, well, that person or, or those people must have done something really, really bad. They must be getting payback for one of their, their misdeeds along the way. Now, in other words, the bad things that happen are the result of some simple cause and effect equation. The concept here is that of, of karma. Karma being a a type of cosmic retribution where the bad things that happen to me are the result of the bad things that I've done and and the good things that happen to me uh, are the result of my good behavior. Now, karma can certainly provide a a, a motivation for positive living. If for no other reason than than to make our own lives go well. The other day I was was at a coffee shop and and, and the, the, the tip jar was labeled Tip Karma. And so, I mean, the idea is clear. If you tip us, then the rest of the day will, will probably go better for you. And, and I, of course, rejecting that pagan nonsense, said to myself, I'm not going to tip you people. Um, I'm kidding. Um, the problem, though, with karma 
is that though it attempts to provide an explanation for what happens in the world, it can't account for numerous tragic events. Like, for instance, a man being born blind. Our text goes out of the way again to emphasize that the man did not become blind, but was born blind. He's always been blind. And since he's been that way since birth, this notion for, uh, of tit for tat, uh, this simple equation of, well, you did this, so you get that, it, it, doesn't, it gets a little more complicated. It doesn't add up. But in the minds of the disciples, the notion of getting what we deserve is, is up and running, and they're thinking, someone has to be responsible here. And so they asked Jesus, who did what? Verse 3, Jesus undercuts their commitment to marriage. Jesus says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents sinned, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. Here, Jesus isn't saying that he and his parents were sinners. What he's saying is, is that this blindness is not a direct result or some direct judgment for a particular sin. Certainly, all suffering is the result uh, of the fall, and and certainly Scripture teaches that that God can and does punish people for particular sins. But what Jesus teaches here is that it isn't necessarily safe to assume that every bad thing happens because, uh, because of a particular sin being punished. In this instance, the reason God allows suffering to take place is so that this broken person might experience his grace. And it's this notion of grace that completely shatters the disciples' commitment to merit, to to human beings getting what they deserve. And this is the real problem with karma or, or, or merit or getting what we deserve, whatever you want to call it. It doesn't jive with Jesus. One of my favorite ba- bands from, uh, from way back when is, is U2, going on tour this summer. Uh, uh, so excited. Go check your tickets out for that. Um, it'll be a pretty penny. But, but a couple years back, Bono, uh, who, who's a Christian, gave a powerful explanation uh, about the difference between Christianity and every other religion. He says this, At the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Or or in physics, in the the physical laws, every action is met with an equal or opposite one. It's clear to me, Bono says, that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet along comes this idea called grace. To upend all that as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to be my judge. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. What we see pictured with the man born blind is unmerited, unsolicited grace. As Jesus passes by, Jesus notices this man And because the man can't see Jesus, Jesus must pursue him. And so without the man ever asking for it, Jesus grants the man's sight. Not because this man is deserving, but in spite of the fact that he isn't. Now you would think the concept of grace would be something up and running in the minds of the disciples. After all, Jesus had called them, right? And yet still, even still, 
the primary lens through which these individuals see the world is in terms of people getting what they deserve. And incidentally, this is the reason that God has to remind his people over and over again that his choice of them has nothing to do with how good they are. Because God's people are always so tempted to think that we've been chosen because of something good about us, which then flies in the face of grace. But it's so tempting to think in these terms because what comes natural to us is not grace, but merit. And that may be the way of the world, but it's not the way of Christ's kingdom. And as those who who have experienced grace, we are called to see the world through that lens. So that grace begins to affect how we view everything. Where grace becomes the beat of our hearts. Where grace becomes the, the default setting in how we interact with the world. Think about it for a moment. How would our lives look different if we actually believed that? Say, for instance, instead of waiting for our enemies to get what they deserve, we loved them, as Christ calls us to do. But if we're honest, we have to confess that oftentimes that is not us, which leads to massive blind spots among believers. What else? What other commitments can we as believers have that can keep us from seeing Jesus clearly? Take a look at verses 8 and 9. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. But others said, No, it's just, it's just like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. Now here we find a community of people who for years, every single day, would see this man in his usual spot begging. Begging for help. And all of a sudden, he's not there. He's not where he's supposed to be. He's walking around with his eyes open, with a different countenance, I'm sure. And now they can't recognize him. These people are blown away because this man is not supposed to be walking around with sight. That's not supposed to happen. The notion that, that, that he would ever experience anything other than blindness was understandably thought to be outside the realm of possibility. In fact, it would take a miracle for this man to be up walking around. And even for God's people, the miraculous is oftentimes something that we aren't so sure about. And this gets to the second commitment that can keep us from seeing Jesus and his work. It's a commitment to, to materialism and naturalism. I repeat that. A, a commitment to materialism and naturalism. Now, if I use the word materialism, You may hear me describing sort of, you know, the love of things, maybe. Big houses, new cars, nice clothes, whatever. That's what it means to be materialistic. And while there may be some overlap in there, that's not exactly what the word means. Materialism is the belief that the material, what we can see, what we can touch, that kind of stuff, that's all there is. All that exists is what we can see, what we can hear, what we can touch, what we can taste, what we can smell. That's it. Nothing else. Which then, then sort of feeds into another is- ism. Naturalism. Naturalism being the notion that for, for everything there is, there must be a natural explanation, which would then completely discount the notion of the, the supernatural. As we look at our passage, we find people for whom it would make more sense that this guy 
had a twin brother that they had never met before or heard about than for him to be healed. And the reason why is because though there may be the acknowledgement of the God of the supernatural for them, and for us as well if we're honest, we can easily fall into the trap of, of solely believing in what we can see. Even for us as Christians, we gather together on Sundays. Why? Because we believe that Jesus Christ was real deal dead. And then he woke up. And yet, in our lives, we aren't so sure if God actually accomplishes the miraculous. But even now, he's at work in bringing about his purposes. And when we fail to believe that, when we allow ourselves to believe that all that exists is the here and the now, we're going to have massive blind spots that will lead us to at least, at least two mindsets in our thinking. Two mindsets become prevalent in our thinking if this is all there is. We're either going to become control freaks or we're going to become fatalists. We're either going to buy in to the, to the idea that as, as we encounter a broken world, we have to fix it. We have to make the circumstances change, which come with enormous pressure and anxiety. Or, as we encounter things we want to fix but can't, we become frustrated. We become bitter. We become cynical. I mean, how many of us think about this? How many of us have a situation in our life? Or or better, how many of us have a person in our life? That, that we're just tempted to think, well, you know, that's, that's just the way it is. Or, or that's just the way they are. That could never change. I don't know the challenges that, that, that each of us bring in, into this room. And, and certainly there's wisdom in understanding the complexity of circumstances, and, and that as we live in a fallen world, it, it will never be perfect until Jesus returns. And that God can and will, do, uh, he, he will do what he pleases. We get that, right? But how, how easy is it for us to use that as an excuse to forget that, that we believe in a God who's actually sovereign over this planet? who makes promises to provide for his people, who encourages us to pray for things, who names his people Israel, which means God fights. In other words, God's going to fight your battles for you, who promises to work all things out for our good. I I realize that that Romans 8.28 can totally be mishandled and misapplied, but living in this world, we need that hope desperately. The hope of a God who can and does supernaturally change hearts and change lives and change this world. And we can trust that he can do it. Why? Because he's done it for us. What else? What other commitments do we find in this passage that obscures us from seeing Jesus and his work? Verse 13, check this out. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. Now, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. Here we find the the, the primary sparring partners during Jesus' life and ministry. It's the Pharisees. 
the, the, the law-abiding religious types of Jesus' day who, who knew the Scriptures better than anyone else and who were determined to, to create a good, moral, upstanding society through strict obedience to the law. But what we find here is that what blinds the Pharisees from giving God any credit for the miracle that's taken place is our third commitment that can keep us from seeing Jesus and his work, which is a commitment to man-made religion, okay? So we have commitment to merit, we have a commitment to materialism, and we have a commitment to man-made religion. Controversy ensues around this miracle because all of this goes down on the Sabbath day, a day when no work was supposed to be done. Now, Throughout the Gospels, we find Jesus healing people over and over again. He heals people. He just looks at them. You're healed. You're healed. And then they're healed. But here Jesus does something weird. He makes a mud pie, and he puts it over their eyes. And you're sort of going, what what gives? Like, what, what are you doing here, Jesus? It doesn't really make a lot of sense until we realize what Jesus is up to. What he's trying to do, he's trying to provoke the Pharisees. Because though Jesus doesn't actually break the Sabbath here, as far as God is concerned, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, he had. You see, over time, the Pharisees, as they interpreted, uh, interpreted the law, what happened is their interpretation began to be treated as if it was actually God's law as well. It would be like me saying, you know, don't go into the sanctuary to my son. And so he kind of goes, well, I'm actually not going to go in the building. If I don't go in the building, then I won't go in the sanctuary. So we're building laws around God's laws. Rules were made that God didn't make to protect God's laws. And so do not work turns into you can't even break the soil. And because of all of this, Jesus, their Messiah, the one they've been waiting for, is standing in front of them, and they can't recognize him. Why? because he does not fit their religious paradigm and expectations. Now, the term religion, it's got a bad rap nowadays. It's often equated with sort of empty formalism that supposedly Jesus came to save us from. As the saying goes, Jesus came not to give us religion, but a relationship. And and I get the logic behind this, but frankly, it it can make me a tad nervous for a couple of reasons. First, when we position religion against relationship and then chunk religion, a lot of what gets chunked are things the Bible actually just like, tells us to do, stuff you're supposed to do. But beyond that, when we chunk religion in favor of a relationship, what it does is it ignores the fact that within all of us, even within people who think they have somehow maybe risen above being religious, There's just this impulse to make rules that God doesn't make and then judge other people by them. This is how you're supposed to dress. This is how you're supposed to vote. This is how you're supposed to worship. This is where you send your kids to school. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Now, all of us have to make decisions on these matters, and these matters matters get really complicated. And in numerous areas, God gives Christians the, the latitude, the freedom even, to arrive at different conclusions using wisdom. But here's the thing. All of us are capable of subtly going beyond what Scripture actually teaches and thinking, this works for me, and it should work for you too. 
You should do it too. And it's the you should do it too part is where we get ourselves into trouble. Because what can happen, and we see it in our text, is that it is possible to become so passionate about our traditions, about our methods, about our opinions, that we hold them in a way that can obscure Jesus. Where we think, this is our way, it's the right way, it's the only way. And therefore, anything that does not fit our religious paradigms gets chunked, gets dismissed. We are all capable of making religion into an end unto itself that misses the point of encountering Jesus. And this is why religion is so often criticized nowadays. It's also why Jesus saves his harshest words, not for the prostitutes, not for the tax collectors, but for the religious people. Take a look at verse 39. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. What this means is is that Jesus' presence exposes just how blind human beings can be. He's in front of them, and they cannot recognize him. And in verses 40 and 41, we see a litmus test. You want to know whether or not you're blind or not? Here it is, verses 40 and 41. Some of the Pharisees near him heard him say these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus says to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. In other words, if our response to the idea of being blind is, no, I'm not. Then you are. The paradox here is that actually seeing is admitting that you're blind. While what it means to be blind is thinking we can see. Blind people can see that they're blind. And this realization leads them to long for light. However, those who think they aren't blind are blind to the fact that they can't. And so they don't need Jesus to come and give them sight. They're fine, just the way they are. And our passage concludes. It concludes both with hope, hope that Jesus offers sight to blind people, but also with the word of judgment. It's only available to those who can see they are blind. What do we do with this? What's our application here? Jesus' word here is an encouragement. It's an encouragement to humble dependency. That apart from Jesus coming and giving us sight, we will not have it. And yes, that means that Jesus has to come to us initially and give us sight so that we can turn to him and so that we can be saved from our sin. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't just come to save us from hell. Jesus didn't come just to save us from hell. Jesus also came to save us from what we are capable of in our sin, in our blindness today. And so if we as Christians continue to have massive blind spots, and we do, 
Whether we're talking about merit, whether we're talking about materialism, whether we're talking about man-made religion, or whether we're talking about the countless other obstacles that keep us from seeing Jesus clearly, obstacles that create huge disconnects between what we say we believe and, and how we actually live, then we need Jesus to come to us, not just the one time. We need Jesus to come to us and give us sight again and again and again and again. Because though we may not be able to see the disconnects between our life, what we profess, and how we actually live, our families can see it. Our friends can see it. Our co-workers can see it. Our spouses can see it. Our church can see it. An unbelieving world can see it. And so we need to do, what we need to do is admit the fact that we are the people walking around with spinach in our teeth. We are the people walking around with our flies undone. We are the people oblivious to these things about ourselves, embarrassing ourselves with these massive blind spots. And what we need is for someone to come to us, that, 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 that dear saint, and say, hey, hey you, need, you, got some, you need to clean that up. We need someone to expose what's really going on. Enter Jesus. Because while Jesus exposes our sin, exposes our blindness, yes, there is judgment involved here. We see it here. That is not the whole story. Elsewhere in John's gospel, we find Jesus making the statement that God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus exposes the sins of his people not to make us feel foolish or to shame us or to condemn us, so that we might know ourselves better and turn to him again and again and again in faith and repentance so that we might experience his grace, which would then propels us to follow him in ways that we were unable to before because we didn't even know we weren't. One of my favorite passages is is the story of the rich young ruler, the guy who came up to Jesus very much believing, like the Pharisees, that he was capable of earning his way to God. And after Jesus exposes this man's motives, the Gospel of Mark, Mark's account, tells us something very, very profound about Jesus. Mark tells us that Jesus loved him, that Jesus loved the Pharisee, which gets to the reason why Jesus goes after them so harshly. Not only is their religion, their extra laws, keeping other people from Jesus, their religion, their extra laws are keeping them from Jesus as well. I mean, keep in mind that that many of the Pharisees that Jesus will speak so harshly to with a passage like John 9, after they go on to crucify Jesus, when confronted with their massive blind spot in Acts chapter 2, they will become followers of Jesus. Think about that. The people who killed Jesus look at Peter and go, what shall we do? He said, okay, you killed Jesus. What do we, what do you do? You, you turn to Jesus because you need him, and he's there. Many of the Pharisees will be given eyes to see, and only Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, accomplishes that, and he delights in doing it. 
because he loves his people. And it's only through knowing that your sin is completely exposed to God, but you are loved by Christ, that you are his, that you are forgiven, that through the perfect life and atoning death of Jesus Christ alone, you are righteous. Only through knowing that will you ever dream about having the freedom to explore the depths of who you are, to be honest about what's really going on in your heart, to take that good, hard look in the mirror, to even invite Jesus to expose our blind spots to us, trusting that our sin will not count against us. We need that kind of relationship with Jesus. We need a dynamic relationship with Jesus, where by the means he is appointed, through prayer, through spending time in God's word, through being immersed in a people who can, who can tell us the hard stuff about ourselves and we not run away from them, we can be exposed and yet turn again and again in faith and repentance to Christ and experience his grace in the daily. And we need this daily because we need Jesus to save us from ourselves today. But, but here's the thing, just like I'm driving with the little smart car right there, I'm going to move. I'm going to get off on this exit. And when I get back on the next day or whatever, what I'm going to experience then is different. My blind spot today might not be my blind spot tomorrow. And so I don't need Jesus just today. I need him tomorrow too. We need a gospel of grace that, that tells us that though our blind spots are real, Jesus loves us and he exposes it for our good. So in light of the blind spots that are real, Would we in humble reliance stay close to Jesus? Would we long for Jesus to shine his light in our darkness and give us light? Would we have our blind spots exposed and find Jesus there reminding us that his grace is sufficient for us? And would he save us from all that is blinding us? So that like the man born blind, each and every day, we can say we were blind and now we see. Let me pray for us. Father, would we see confession, as Nathan alluded to earlier, as, as a chance to be honest because of your grace, not a chance to feel the weight of our shame as if your gospel is not true. We come to our Father and be honest. Help us to be honest, knowing that your grace is sufficient. Help us to, to even embrace the idea of being exposed, knowing that your grace is sufficient. Would you keep us close to your side? Would you, would you equip us? Would you, would you help us to believe that by the means appointed, um, you can work would we, in our lives and, and, and make us what we're incapable of being on our own? We're thankful for your goodness and grace to your people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.